in the land of Zebulun and of Naphtali beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River in Galilee where so many Gentiles live. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death casts its shadow, a light has shined. church. Really glad we can be together again today. I know it's spring break week, so so many of our families are traveling. It's a welcome break uh, for them, but I'm sure if they're not here, they're watching online. So if you're watching online, welcome. We're glad you're watching from wherever you are. Hopefully not the beach, because we want to be there. But uh, I'm glad you guys are here today. It is a beautiful day here, and it's a wonderful day to gather. And I know that uh, people are traveling, so maybe some of you are here for the first time or the first time in a long time, and we want to welcome you too and say we are so grateful you are here. Uh, you may notice Zach is leading with a little more enthusiasm today. That's because he's getting married later this week. Zach and Madison are getting married. Yeah, praise God for that. So he won't be here next Sunday, but that's okay. You can still come and we'll have a good experience, I'm sure. But uh, we look forward to that for you guys and are grateful for you and for what you mean to our family already. So it's going uh, to be a great uh, month as we continue on. We are in the middle of a series we started last week called Seeing Jesus. And the prayer we're praying in these days leading up to Easter is simply this, Jesus, we want to see you. Now that may sound like a bit of, a, of an odd prayer to the average person, but we believe that Jesus still heals blindness, and even more than that, that he has the power, the ability to heal our spiritual blindness. And we think the heart of Jesus, at the, at the very heart of Jesus, is a deep desire to open our eyes so we can see his face and follow his lead. But it does raise the question, I think it's a really good question, how can we see Jesus? How can we see Jesus? If you're anything like me, probably one of the ways you can see Jesus or you've seen Jesus is in his word. I was taught, and I know this isn't true for everyone, but I was raised in a family that believed that the Bible was the word of God, that it was a reliable word, the reliable word of God, and that these words are true, that you can build your lives on these teachings. The church I was raised in taught that the Bible is inspired. It's the inspired word of God. It is God-breathed. And we got that from Scripture. Uh, from 2 Timothy, you may have heard this verse before. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, All Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I'll be honest, as a kid, that worked for me. That was enough for me. Is, is the Bible reliable? Is it true? Is, is, do we have, is what we have what they wrote? Well, yes. I mean, the Bible says so, right? As a, as, a, as a kid, that worked for me. But as I grew up, that that logic didn't quite work out so well because I began to think, how does one verse in 2 Timothy really prove that the whole New Testament is true? Or how does one verse in 2 Timothy prove that Isaiah is, is true? And, and even if Paul did write this, and there's some question as to whether he did or not, we ascribe 2 Timothy to a man by the name of Paul. But even if he did write this, he couldn't have been referring to the New Testament because when he wrote it, that didn't exist yet. It was still coming together. And it's not like at some point in time, God came down and handed us this book and said, 
This is the inspired word of God. Follow its teachings and you shall live. That didn't happen. The Bible, as some of you know, it's written by over 40 different authors in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And it was written over a span of at least a thousand years. Some people say more. And you added that the Second Timothy is a book of, of some questions. Scholars disagree about maybe who exactly wrote it. So, so we're not sure. And don't get me wrong. I believe in Second Timothy. I believe Second Timothy is the inspired word of God. I believe Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is a great verse and a great text to go to. But if I'm sitting with my friend at Starbucks who doesn't necessarily believe in God and has questions about the reliability of Scripture, it would really be hard for me to go to that verse and say, this is the sole reason I believe that this is the inspired word of God. And it raises the question that some of you have wrestled with and all of us need to wrestle with. How how do we know we can trust this book? How do we know that what we have is what they wrote? After all, the truth is, and some of you know this, some of you may not, but we don't even have one copy of any original text. We don't. There there is no original text to work with. What we have instead are copies of copies of copies. What happened over time is scribes would would take Scripture and they would sit down and they would copy it by hand. There were no copy machines. You you probably knew that. Those weren't invented until, what, 1400s, uh, printing press. So so they had to do this by hand, and and they were good at it. They were meticulous. They counted every word and every letter, but they they hand-wrote copies, and then other scribes came along, and they wrote copies of those copies. And it's kind of like this. I've got 10 helpers. Let me get you guys to come up real quick. I think you've already been tapped, so come up here on stage if, if we've got you before to come help out. Some of you are being rejected. Sorry about that. The rest of you, come on down. So anybody ever played the telephone game? You ever do this before? Yeah, it's kind of like this. And so these guys are going to demonstrate this for me. Wow, this is going to be awesome. This ought to be really good. These are some of the smartest kids in the world. They just happen to go to church here. We are so blessed. So uh, this is my daughter, maybe the smartest of all, Ella Grace. I can say that because she's my daughter. No disrespect. Um, my kids say that all the time. No disrespect, Dad, but. And then they hit me with a zinger. But anyway, um, here we go. Ella Grace, I want to give you this phrase on this piece of paper. Don't show it to anybody. I want you to read it, and then you're going to whisper it down to this person. Whisper it down, all the way down, and then hold that. Don't let anybody see it. And then Aiden, I'm going to give you a pen and paper. And whatever Will tells you, I want you to write down on this piece of paper. Can you do that for me? Here you go. I'm going to give you something to write on because that's going to be hard. Gracie, go ahead. You can read that. And then I want you to whisper it, and we're going to whisper it all the way down the line. And this is kind of like what it was like, right? For hundreds of years, through the centuries, people took what they read, they copied it, and they passed it down. That was copied, and that was passed down. Where are we at? Have you whispered it yet? Oh, go, go. I'm sorry. I was trying to stall, see? I haven't trained her well enough yet. Um, Working on that. Here we go. Passed down over time, century after century, And what we have in the biblical text is actually copies of copies of copies of copies. And we're going to see, you can only say it once. Yeah, see, this is how it goes. This is the telephone game. Listen. He didn't say anything. Okay, we're going to start over. (laughs) I hope you're not in a hurry for lunch. All right, Ellie Grace, one more time. Here we go.
my mind is one little pastor. We need like some music, but that's okay. Oh no. Oh no. Lost again. Who are your parents? <laughs> Just kidding. Who, who's the last person that knows it? Do you know it? Yeah. Skip, skip ahead. Skip down here. To, to, yeah, there you go. Skip the person. There we go. Go ahead. All right, here, well, here's what we're going to do. You run all the way to the end. I don't know what it is. You don't even know what it is? Well, this makes the point even clearer, doesn't it? <laughs> if the smartest kids in the world can't pass one sentence all the way down the line, what hope do we have of knowing that our scripture, you're dismissed. Go to lunch. <laughs> hey, give these guys a round of applause. Y'all can, y'all can go ahead and go. We would keep playing, but these guys do get hungry, and so uh, we'll just move on for now. Isn't that, didn't that make the point, though? It would be really difficult, I would think, to take handwritten documents over time and pass them down with accuracy over and over again throughout the centuries. And and even then, if they do get passed down, you know, how many times was there an error? And if an error made is made right here, like it was right here, then this person doesn't know, do they copy the error? Do they copy this copy? Which copy do they copy? And if they don't even know what it said, sometimes, sometimes that same thing happened. People made up stuff to go where they thought it went. So how can we know that what we have in our hands is what they wrote back then? This is a really huge question. For some of you, this is the reason you've had a hard time believing in God or believing that the Word of God is trustworthy, is a reliable witness. Because you know, you know how hard that would be, even if it's possible to have a reliable document passed down through centuries of time. But for all of us, this is a huge question because for many of us in the room, we've we've built our lives on these teachings, on these words. We believe, some of us from a very early age, yes, Jesus loves me. Why? Because why? The Bible tells me so. We believe that this Bible, the scripture, these ancient words, point to a person. They tell a story of God's great love, and they point to the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and we believe he's our Lord and Savior because of these words. But how can we know that what we have now is what they wrote way back then? I'm not going to be able to answer all of your questions today. We we simply don't have time to, to do that deep of a dive, but I do want to give you five reasons today why I believe the Bible is true, and even more than that, five reasons why I believe you can see Jesus in Scripture. If you want to see Jesus, I believe you can see Jesus in Scripture. And there's five reasons why I believe that that is true and that the Bible is true. And the first reason is this, because the places and people are real. There is evidence of the places and the people that you read about in your Scriptures. And if you wanted to, today, this week, you could get on a plane and you could fly to Israel like my wife Alicia and I did back in October. And you can get off the plane, sit foot in the land of Israel, and you can see the actual places in Scripture that are are talked about. They exist. They are real. They're historical places, sites, cities. You can go to the Sea of Galilee, and you can sail on the Sea of Galilee where Jesus and those first disciples went and sailed. You can even walk on it if you have enough faith. I tried. I didn't. I don't know what that says about your preacher, but oh well. (laughs) 
You can go, you can go to Capernaum. The hometown of Jesus, where Jesus lived when he did his Galilean ministry. And you can sit in the same synagogue where Jesus taught from the scriptures. You can go from there to Bethlehem. You can go see the city where Jesus was born. You can look over into the valley, into the shepherd's field. And you can see where those angels came and appeared that night and announced to those shepherds the birth of the Messiah. You can go to Jerusalem and you can see literally where the temple once stood. You can go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and you can pray on the Mount of Olives, and you can reflect on what Jesus did. You can go and you can see the probable locations of where Jesus died at Golgotha, where he, rose, where, where, where he was buried in that tomb, and where he rose again. You can go. And you can see that all of these places are real. And they'll tell you when, they get, when you get there that this may or may not be the actual, literal, physical site where it happened. But if it's not, you're probably within 100 yards. You're that close. You can go and you can see that there's evidence that all these places are real and where all this happened actually took place. But not just that. You can see evidence that the people are real. I could give you a lot of examples, but let me just give you two. You can go and today you can see the, the, the buildings that King Herod built. You can see the, the arena he built, and you can see the theater that he built in Caesarea. You can see there were King Herod, the same king that tried to kill Jesus when he was born. You can see evidence that he was a real historical figure, an actual person. You can go to that same place in Caesarea, and in 1961, they discovered Pilate's stone, a, a, a rock with an engraving from Pontius Pilate, proving rock-solid, literal evidence that Pilate is and was a real historical figure. You can see that there is evidence. The places and the people are real. And what's interesting is the more they dig, the more they discover, the more they find, every time, all it does is confirm what we believe. Every new discovery just backs up and confirms the biblical story again. They have yet to find anything to discredit anything you read in your scripture. Nothing has disproved what we believe about Christ. That's one reason, but there's another reason, and this is a big one. We'll spend a little bit more time here, the manuscripts, and this is where a lot of people get hung up, but you can see Jesus, I believe, in the ancient manuscripts because of really two big reasons. One is the sheer number and the dates of those manuscripts that we have that contain ancient scripture. It's an important point because we've mentioned this, but there are a lot of variance in those texts. There's lots of places where they agree, and there's lots of places where they disagree, and we don't have any original documents. And, and some people would say, there's no way you can trust the Bible. Do you know how many variants are in this text? There's, you've got to just throw it out. There's no way you can believe that this is true when there are so many places where, where the text that you have, the manuscripts that you have, disagree. Other people would say this. The Bible, every single word that you have, it is exactly what was written. Now, those are two extremes. The truth is, there are some variants, but you can be confident that the Bible is a reliable witness to what was once written. Of course, the question then is, okay, let's, let's, let's time out and pause and let's talk about how many variants are there? How many times do these words agree and disagree with each other? Before I tell you that, let me, let me back up and tell you this. You may or may not know this, 
in, in the New Testament, in the original language, in the Greek New Testament, there are 140,000 words. All right? Matthew, Revelation. Dan Wallace, an expert in all this, he says this, that there are actually 138,162 words to be exact. All right? So out of those 138,000 words and some change, how many variants are there in the manuscripts that make up what, what we have, what you hold in your hand or your, you have in your, on your phone that we call the Bible? In the New Testament alone, 400,000 variants. That sounds, like a huge, that sounds like a huge number. And this, again, is where our critics would say, you can't trust the Bible. There's 400,000 places where it, it disagrees with itself, where it's not accurate, where, where it doesn't line up, where there's, where there's a variant. And besides that, you don't have any original documents all you have are copies of copies, and even beyond that, you rarely have any entire documents. It's rare that you have an entire book. Mostly what you have are partial documents or, or fragments here and there. How can you believe that this is true? What they don't tell you is the reason we have so many variants is because, is because we have so many manuscripts containing Scripture. In fact, if you compare it to other classical writings, the Bible wins in a landslide. And, and I just want to show you this and demonstrate this too. Hopefully this will go better than the last time I tried something. I've got <laughs> seven more helpers, I think. So you guys come up if you've been tapped to help. You don't have to talk, so this should go much easier. Um, here we go. We'll see how this goes here. All right. So what I want to do, I want to show you this. This is going to be cool. Y'all come on down here. Preston, you're going to be a guy named Homer. Do you know Homer? Okay, that's fine. Um, he lived 8th, 9th century uh, B.C., and he wrote a work called the Iliad, and this is actually not it. I need the other stack right beside it. That's all right. That's all right. We're going to get there. So uh, Homer wrote a work called the Iliad. Most of you probably know that. Uh, by and large, this is the most copies we have of any ancient document, 1,800 copies, nearly two. Can you hold that? Yeah. 2,000 copies of the Iliad. That's unprecedented. It's fantastic. It's an amazing discovery that we have that many. Are you still good? I have to hold it for a little while. Okay, good. All right. Fantastic. Uh, another guy, Herodotus. You know Herodotus? You're going to be Herodotus. Herodotus, uh, he, was, he was an ancient historian, um, a Greek historian. We have a hundred copies of his writing. That's significant because they call him the father of history, and much of what we believe about the time is based on his writing but we only have 100 copies of it, and no one doubts anything that he says. Some of you probably know Plato. Plato, uh, we have 210 copies of what he wrote. Can you hold that for me right there? You're good. Um, guy named Julius Caesar, anybody heard of him? Yeah, he wrote a little bit. We have 250 copies. Excuse me, yeah, yeah, 250 of what he wrote. Um, a guy named Levy, anybody know Levy? Probably not, a little thinner crowd here. Uh, Levy was a historian. Um, a Roman historian. We have 100 copies of what he wrote. He and another guy named Tacitus, we have 31 copies of what Tacitus wrote. They, pretty much everything we know about ancient Rome, we get from, from these, these two fellows right here, all right? And that's all we have, all right? Now, that may seem like a lot. Homer's Iliad certainly is a lot. Um, the other problem with most of these documents is that the, the copies we have of these manuscripts from, from the time they were written over here, Back to the telephone game. And, and the time we have the earliest manuscript is several hundred years. All right? Now, let me show you what the New Testament looks like. Oh, Daniel, I'm so sorry, dude. Um, the New Testament, we have, it would be amazing if we had 2,000 like the Iliad, 
Um, we actually have more. This is about, yeah, this is about 3,000. But we don't have 3,000. We actually, this is another, this is about 4,000. But I ran out of paper, and I need to borrow the Iliad, because this is actually how much we have. I'm, I'm going to hold this for you. Um, this is how much we have of the New Testament, 5,838 copies of the ancient Greek New Testament. Are, are you good? You need, to, you need some help? Okay, good. Um, this is how much we have of the actual ancient Greek New Testament. And, and one of these pieces, my favorite, it's a document called uh, the P52, uh, is, is, a, is a fragment, it's just a small fragment of John, but it dates back to the time when John actually lived. And if, and if, it, if it actually was copied after he died, it's within a, a decade or two. It's that close in terms of nearness to that copy in the original writing of the Gospel of John. It's amazing. And that'll be one thing, but there's more. Can you hold any more? I'm going to say no. <gasps> There's actually another over 18,000 documents, manuscripts, that are translations of these early Greek translations. Altogether, we have 25,000, nearly 25,000 copies of the Greek New Testament. How amazing is that? The reason we have so many variations is because we have so many documents. Daniel, can you sit these down? I need some help. Here you go. Let me, let me just help you with that. Hold my word. There we go. There we go. Good deal. Thank Give these guys a round of applause. John, just sit those down right there. Thank you. Thank you. Good job. Good job. Good job. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I know. I know. Good job. If you were to take the average work of the ancient classical writer and stack it up, you would, you would, you would get a stack about four feet tall. If you took the New Testament and stacked it up, we have 2.6 million pages of manuscripts. It will be one mile high. If you add to that what we have in the Old Testament manuscripts, it would be two and a half miles high. The reason we have so many variants is because we have an embarrassment of riches. We have so many documents containing Scripture. And when you line them all up, you see that this beautiful story has been revealed. But let's talk about those variants. Uh, those variants generally get broken down into to four different categories. All right, 400,000 variances, they get broken down into four categories. The first is this, spelling differences. All right, get this, 70% of those differences, those variants in scripture, in the manuscripts we have, 70% of those variants are spelling differences. For example, in, in Greek, sometimes the name John is spelled J-O-H-N with one N. Sometimes it's spelled with two N's, J-O-H-N-N. Every time there's one letter difference, that's called a variant. 70% of the differences in the New Testament are just spelling differences. That's the first category. The next is this, alterations that can't be translated into English. You probably know this in English, what word order is important. We start with subject, then we give a verb, and then we give the object. In Greek, the rules are different. You can put the, the words in any order you want, and what's even more crazy is you can put the definite article anywhere you want. So sometimes translating from Greek into English can be a little bit difficult, and you have to use context to do that. And some of these variants are alterations that simply can't be translated into English. The third is this. 
meaningful, variants that are meaningful, but not viable. So there are times when there are variants that actually have meaning, but nobody believes they're accurate. Nobody believes uh, they're viable. One of my favorite examples is this. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 2.7, he says that we were gentle among you. Now, there's one 14th century manuscript that reads this. We became like horses among you. (laughs) Nobody believes that's accurate, but that's a meaningful variant, but it's not viable. Now, get this. Those three categories make up over 99% of all the variants in all the manuscripts we have of the New Testament. Wow. Less than one-fifth of 1% make up this last category, which is meaningful and viable. These are places in your scripture where the meaning is changed and it, it, it is viable. It is meaningful. So let me, let me just share those with you. Mark nine twenty nine. You may remember this story if you know your, your scripture. Jesus is, is coming along. He sees his disciples there's a father there with his, his child, and the boy is demon-possessed, and the disciples are trying, but they can't cast the spirit out. And so Jesus does. The boy is healed and made well. Later on, the disciples ask Jesus, why couldn't, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? And Jesus responds this way. He says, that kind can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. Some manuscripts don't have and fasting. They just have prayer. That's a meaningful and viable variant. My advice is, if you're going to cast out a demon, pray and fast. All right? does, it believe, does it change anything we believe about God or Jesus? No. But it is meaningful and it is viable. Another is this. Revelation 13, 18 says this. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. You probably knew that already. You've probably avoided that number most of your life. You know, Some translations, there's a few, that actually, actually have the number 616. It's meaningful. It's viable. Once again, it doesn't change anything we believe about Jesus. It may just be another number you want to avoid. Um, the longest variance is 12 verses, and there's two occurrences. One, and you probably have seen this, is at the end of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. If you open your Bible, you'll see in most of your Bibles, there's going to be a couple of footnotes there. And, and again, this is another reason why I think you can trust the Bible. Almost every time there's a variance, there's going to be a footnote, and you can decide for yourself what you believe. At the end of Mark, there's two because because the way Mark ended in the very earliest manuscripts we have, it ends in a bit of a strange way. It ends with with Jesus being resurrected, but no one sees the resurrected Jesus. And it ends with the followers of Jesus in fear, being afraid, and silent. No one tells the story. That's a bit of a strange way to end the story. And so when scribes came along and they're, transla- or they're, they're, they're translating or they're copying the gospel of Mark to get to the end, and they're like, no, this is not how the story ends. We know how the story ends. What happened over time is two different endings were written. People, scribes had drawn from what Matthew said, what Luke said, what tradition said, and they made up a couple of different endings for Mark. Another example is in John 8, probably my most favorite story of Jesus of all time. Jesus is standing here in the town, and they bring a woman caught to him in the act of adultery. And if you know the story, Jesus sees the woman, has great compassion on her. The religious leaders are trying to to trap Jesus, but instead Jesus looks at them and he says, Hey, I have an idea. 
whoever among you is without sin, you go ahead and you cast the first stone. And of course, they all walk away. The earliest manuscripts we have of the Gospel of John, none of them have that story in John 8. Did that story happen? I tend to think it did. Did John write that story as a part of his gospel? Probably not. Does it change anything we believe about Jesus? Any, any core doctrine of the church? No. No. What's amazing is that all of these documents we have, all of these manuscripts of ancient scripture, if anything, what it does is it confirms that what we have in scripture is a reliable witness, and you can have extreme confidence. You can see Jesus in the text. It is a reliable and trustworthy source. Another reason, and I'm going to start moving a little quicker because we're running low on time, but I believe you can see Jesus in Scripture because Jesus saw himself in Scripture. We have this story in, in Luke 4. If you believe Jesus is who he says he is, that changes everything about you. One of the things that changes is that you, you, you should believe what Jesus believed. I know this may not help the skeptic, but for those of us in the room who have decided that Jesus is who he says he is, that means that you probably want to line up and you want to believe what he believed. One of the things Jesus believed was that the scripture he had was true. So in Luke 4, we have this story. I'll read it quickly. Jesus returns to Galilee. He's filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him, and he enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you have just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Jesus reads from scripture. He reads from Isaiah, and he believes that what Isaiah said is true. And what's more is he believed that Isaiah was pointing to him. I think we can see Jesus in scripture because Jesus saw himself in scripture. And if you read the story of Jesus, what he does over and over again is he points people back to Scripture because he knows that Scripture is going to point people back to him. Now, in Nazareth, his hometown, that didn't go over very well. But for you and me, it gives us confidence that if Jesus believed the Scripture was true, maybe we should too. But this is where you do have to decide. If you believe that what we have is what they wrote, you have to decide for yourself if the story is true, and if this is a reliable witness. One of my favorite stories, you may know this story, in 1947, there was a group of Bedouin goat herders who were making their way by the Dead Sea in the Judean desert through an area called Qumran. On one side is the Dead Sea, on the other side are these cliffs, and there's these caves, and one of the goat herders, this young boy, was throwing rocks in the caves, he threw one rock, and he heard something crash. He didn't have time to go check it out because his goats were running away, so he chased his goats down and got up with them, came back later with his cousin. They climbed up the cliff into the cave to see what was in there, and they found ten pots. Most of them were empty, but in one of those pots, they found something. They found a scroll. 
And they took that scroll and they thought, man, I wonder if this is anything important. And they opened it up and it looked really old. So they thought, hey, let's take it to Bethlehem. We know that there is a, a, an antiquities dealer in Bethlehem. Let's take it to him and see if this is, has any worth at all. So they took it to Bethlehem, went to the antiquities dealer. Sure enough, the guy opened it up and said, man, I think you may have something. This looks really, really old. Where'd you find this? They told him. Well, he looped in the archbishop of his church, the Syrian Orthodox Church there in Bethlehem. And he said, man, I think you got something really important here. I'm not real sure what it is. But then they began to loop in scholars from around the world. And sure enough, what they had found, get this, the complete scroll of the book of Isaiah. Wow. One of those scholars was a man by the name of Dr. Albright from John Hopkins University. And he was blown away by their discovery. He looked at it and he read it and he dated it. He said, I think this probably dates back to 100 B.C. You remember the telephone game? Before that, the earliest copy we had of Isaiah was, was about a thousand years before this new copy that's just been found. We just closed the gap by a thousand years. And you might be wondering, in that thousand year gap between, between what we did have in terms of a copy of Isaiah, and, and this new scroll that was found at Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls, how much has changed in that thousand years? How, how many variants do we have in this thousand years? How many things are, are different? Surely, surely lots got lost in translation over, over that time period. Just to zoom in real tight, let's look at one chapter. Isaiah chapter 53 has 166 words. Out of those words, there were found 17 variants. Over 1,000 years, 17 variants. That means there are 17 letters that were different. Over the course of 166 verses, or, uh, words in Isaiah chapter 53. Ten of those were spelling differences. Four of those were stylistic changes like conjunctions. Three of those made up the word light in verse 11. None of them changed the meaning of Isaiah 53. And what does Isaiah 53 say? Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised. And was rejected. A man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God. A punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. Crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly. Yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down. For the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. 
Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. And I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels, and he bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. Who is Isaiah talking about? Jesus. Where in the world could God put a copy of that text so that it could be discovered thousands of years later? God said, I got, a, I got an idea. There's this place, it's the lowest place on earth with the highest salt content, an arid climate, and lots of caves. I'm going to put a community of people there in, in this place called Qumran, called the Essenes, and I'm going to let them copy scripture over and over again and store it in these clay pots and put them in, in those caves. And do you know they found, they found parts of every Old Testament book except Esther in those caves? And at just the right time, I'm going to send a group of Bedouin goat herders, and I'm going to let them throw a rock and crash a pot and find this Isaiah scroll that dates a thousand years before anything they've discovered so far so that the entire world will know that what they have is what they wrote. What you have is a reliable witness. And here's why this matters. Here's why this is so important. I love the way my friend Ben Stewart says it. He says this, God's preservation of his word was for invitation into this family and for transformation into a son or daughter, if you believe. Why did God, God did a great job of preserving his ancient words. Why? All that preservation was for invitation so you and I could be invited into God's family, so you and I could be transformed into a son, into a daughter of God, that if you believe that what this says is true, that Jesus is who he says he is, then you can belong. You can be a part of what God is doing in the world. And you can experience the life that he offers. All this preservation was for invitation and transformation for those of us who would believe. Church, if you would, let's, let's stand. If you're praying, Jesus, I want to see you, I want to tell you, you can see Jesus in his word. But I've got to tell you my last two reasons why I believe before we close. Number four, I believe because, to be honest, my faith isn't built on a book. It's built on a person. His name is Jesus. I believe he lived, he died, he rose again. And 2,000 years later, no one has been able to disprove that fact. His tomb is still empty. And number five, because people throughout the ages, but especially those first followers, were willing to die for it. Every one of those first followers went to their grave, unable to deny that this was true. And some of those guys actually wrote the words that you and I read in this book. And it's a story that we've been telling over and over and over again for 2,000 years. Matthew wrote it down. He actually copied it from Isaiah. And when Matthew told the story, I want you to hear the way he said it. The people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the re region and shadow of death, on them a light 
as dogs. We can see Jesus in Scripture because we have seen a great light. That light has dawned. That light has a name. And his name is Jesus. Let's sing.